In this episode of the St. Philip Institute podcast, we're going to continue our conversation about the sacrament of baptism. And in particular, we're going to look at three things. What is a sacrament? Why is baptism considered one of the sacraments of initiation? And what are the different terms or titles that we can use to describe this sacrament? Please stick around. Welcome to the St. Philip Institute podcast, where we explore the sources of the Catholic faith, including the scriptures, the documents of the church, the teachings of the Second Vatican Council, and the lives and witness of the saints. St. John Paul II often said, Duke in Altum, set out into deep waters. And our goal here at the podcast is to help you do just that. We don't want to merely provide you with information. Instead, we seek to help you achieve a true transformation and to respond to the Lord's call in your life to live out the universal call to holiness. Hi, welcome back to the St. Philip Institute podcast. My name is Luke Arredondo, and I'm the director of faith formation here at the St. Philip Institute. In this episode, we're going to be talking more about the sacrament of baptism. If you're in the Diocese of Tyler, you may have forgotten because we're all the way into September, but this whole year is a year of baptism. And so we're spending um, a few episodes here talking a little bit more in depth about baptism. So in previous episodes, we talked a lot about the biblical um, dimensions of baptism, so the ways in which the Old Testament and the New Testament kind of show us a little bit of a grounding for um, what baptism is and, and what it's supposed to do for us. These conversations, this will be a two-part um, conversation, uh, really are going to focus more on theological aspects of baptism. Um, so what is a sacrament? What are the effects? Why do we need it? Those sorts of questions. So um, right at the outset, uh, I think actually as we're talking about baptism, it's, it's helpful to just think a little bit about what a sacrament is in general, um, because when we're, when we're a little bit more clear about the purpose or the definition of sacraments, then we can kind of look at each one more carefully and, and understand it better. So a bapt, uh, or a sacrament, rather, is um, an outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace. And that's sort of how the, the old Baltimore Catechism defines it, an outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace. Um, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, paragraph 1131, um, says this, the sacraments are efficacious signs of grace instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church by which divine life is dispensed to us. The visible rites by which the sacraments are celebrated signify and make present the graces proper to each sacrament. They bear fruit in those who receive them with the required dispositions. So one of the things that I, I want to point out is that the, the Catechism of the Catholic Church and the Baltimore Catechism, this older style, they both are saying three things about sacraments, and that is that they are instituted by Christ. This is one of the points. Also, that they give us grace, and that they have this sort of external or visible dimension to them. So we'll talk a little about a little bit, especially about the the external sign in baptism. You have a real clear outward and external sign, and you don't always get that in sacraments. Of course, there is something that we can point to and say, well, that's the outward sign. But for instance, like confession, uh, you know, it's it's a little bit more 
clunky to talk about what's the external or outward sign in confession. But in baptism, it's it's really easy. Obviously, it's it's the water, the washing with water. So what's this outward dimension to them? The sacraments have a visible or, or external dimension to them. And what's important about that is it means that there is, in some way, there's a, there's a tangible tangible nature to them. There's, in, in some of them, more a public dimension than others. And in all of the sacraments, what's, what's happening is God is in some way making use of something material, something in this world. He's condescending to get on our level and uh, reach us through these signs. So, God, you know, in the incarnation is his ultimate condescension. He becomes a man, and then he suffers on the cross. Uh, but also through the sacraments, it is a divine condescension. God doesn't have to, in other words, use water or oil. He doesn't need bread. He doesn't need wine, these sorts of things that are involved in the sacraments. But we are human beings, and we have this sort of material component to our nature, right? We are matter and spirit. We're body and spirit. We we are not just um, spiritual beings. We have a physical material dimension to us, and so the sacraments are these material means where God is sort of meeting us where we are. So the sacraments have this external dimension because we are human beings. We're incarnate, and we need something that's in some way not merely spiritual, okay? So that's what we mean when we're talking about the external part of the sacraments. Now, each of them, uh, each of the sacraments are instituted by Christ, and that is really important, right? We do not think that the, the sacraments are the inventions of the church, but all of them have behind them the divine authority of Jesus Christ. So our Lord is the one who establishes sacraments, and he gives them to us. Uh, and you see this in the Gospel of John in particular after the resurrection, um, Jesus, you know, gives his disciples authority, um, but you also see this in the Divine Commission, um, you know, at the end of Matthew's Gospel to go out and baptize all the nations, um, and you see there's a lot of places, uh, and, and we've, we talked a little bit about some of the um, biblical aspects of it um, in, in a previous conversation, so, but the, the sacraments have their authority because ultimately it, it comes from Christ. Now, this, this last point that, you know, when you if you give the, the quick Baltimore Catechism answer, it's an outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace, and you can just jump right on to the next question, whatever the next question is in the Baltimore Catechism. I think sometimes we, we miss the fact that the sacraments give us grace. Then that sounds sort of silly, but sometimes when we as Catholics, when we think about and talk about sacraments, we're thinking about like how many they are, what age you receive them, which are the sacraments of initiation, which are the sacraments of healing, and that sort of thing. And we can sometimes, not always, but sometimes we can lose track of the fact that the sacraments are giving us grace. But what is grace? Grace is the life of the Trinity. It's the divine life. So when you receive a sacrament, you are receiving the life of the Trinity into your soul. It's a small amount, right? You're not, you don't become a member of the Trinity, but you become more like God because you receive his life. So the sacraments helped us to conform ourselves more to the image and likeness of God. And we can truly say that they divinize us. This is a quote from St. Athanasius. It's in the Catechism, paragraph 460. The only begotten Son of God, wanting to make us sharers in his divinity, 
assumed our nature so that he made man might make men gods. So sacraments are means by which we receive the divine life, by which we truly become more like God. And that's a big deal. Um, not, not, you know, we need to, to recall that, that, that grace-giving part, what that means to say we receive grace. I think sometimes grace is one of the words that we need uh, a lot of work on in just sort of Catholic speak to remember what it is. The divine life is the life of the Trinity. Um, there's other ways to describe sacraments. Uh, paragraph 116 in the Catechism, not, not 116, 1116 in the Catechism says that sacraments are powers that come forth from the body of Christ which is ever-living and life-giving. They are actions of the Holy Spirit at work in his body, the church—and then I love this phrase—they are the master works of God in the new and everlasting covenant. And they're, again, powers that come forth from the body of Christ. They're actions of the Holy Spirit. They're the master works of God. So there's a lot of mystery bound up in each of the sacraments. They And really, mysteries is one of the early words that was used to describe the sacraments. Um, you, we still see some of this at the beginning of Mass, you know, when we pray before we enter into the mysteries um, to, to, to recall our sins. Um, so the divine life is being communicated to us. It's being given as an action of the Holy Spirit. It was instituted by Christ to give us the divine life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we could say, for instance, that it's Christ who baptizes us. It is Christ who is offered in the Eucharist because they are powers flowing forth from Christ. And the sacraments also work through the merit of Jesus Christ. They are efficacious uh, because in them, in the sacraments, Christ himself is at work. So just want to comment really a little bit on this notion of effic efficaciousness, um, the efficacy of the, of the sacraments. Again, in paragraph 1131, we have this, this quotation that um, the sacraments are efficacious signs of grace. And that means they are signs. They are, there is a sign quality, a symbol quality to the sacraments, but it is not merely a sign or a symbol. It is a sign or a symbol that accomplishes that which it signifies. So when you think about baptism, baptism, you know, the, the pouring of water is symbolic of and symbolizes a cleansing. But we don't think that it is merely a symbol of that cleansing. Rather, it is in fact cleansing. So there's other signs and symbols that, that we're familiar with in our world that are, that are not efficacious. The sacraments are signs that are efficacious. So if you look, for instance, at, Amer at an American flag or a Texas flag or whatever, that flag symbolizes a country or a state or, you know, some sort of region. It, it, it doesn't give you the region. It doesn't give you the country. You, know, you touch the flag. You're not touching the United States of America, which is an abstract concept. The sacraments do give you the cleansing, right? Baptism gives you the cleansing. The Eucharist not only symbolizes the body of Christ, it, it is the body of Christ, but it also has that sign quality to it. So um, something that's fundamental about the sacraments, Ben, um, is true of all of them, is the way that they work. Um, and this was, uh, you know, a controversy early in the church. There were people that thought if a priest or a bishop is giving sacraments, but he's not a holy priest, he's not a holy bishop, then maybe those sacraments don't count. You got to go to a saint 
to receive a sacrament that's really going to have the power that it's supposed to have. But the Church says, in fact, because the sacraments are efficacious by Christ's merits, they are always going to work. In other words, in it, you, the Church uses this expression in Latin, ex opere operato, by the virtue of the, the power that they have, they work. They work by the power of themselves, be a sort of a clunky way of translating it. And because my Latin knowledge is nearly non-existent, I can only do clunky translations. Um, so the Church teaches basically that a sacrament will accomplish what it is supposed to, not because of the minister, not because of the person administering that sacrament, but by the power of God. So in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1128, we have this this, um, idea that the sacrament is not wrought by the righteousness of either the celebrant or the recipient, but by the power of God. That's what ex opere operato means. So you could go to a priest or a bishop who's, you know, maybe a sinner, maybe they're a really big sinner. You can still be baptized by them. You can still um, have your confession heard and, and all of those things. And then sacraments are still going to work. And at the same time that, that I want to emphasize that, and the Church does emphasize that, it's important, I think, also to say that sacraments are not magic tricks, which means, right, they can be given by any, any priest, any bishop, and, it, and it's not on the holiness of the administrator of the sacrament that's going to—it's not the holiness of, of the administrator of the sacrament that's going to determine whether or not they can really affect baptism or the Eucharist, right? But there's, there's also a sense in which the recipient of the sacrament does have something to do with the power of it. Now, don't misunderstand me. That doesn't mean that if you're not a saint, you don't receive grace from the sacraments. Like, if you're a mortal sinner and you go to confession, but you're not totally cured of your inclination to sin, that doesn't mean that, like, God doesn't want to give you grace. However, it is true that our human cooperation with grace, our being open to the grace that's offered to the sacraments, really does have something to do with how much we get out of the sacraments. And this is something that I I don't think we talk necessarily enough about. It's one thing to read, you know, the account of a saint or a doctor of the church or a martyr or something, and you hear them talk about how powerful communion was, how powerful it was for them to go to confession, that sometimes it overwhelmed them with, with, you know, just um, emotions, or it overwhelmed them with gratitude to realize what they were able to receive. And maybe you're a Catholic, and you're trying to be serious about your faith, and, you know, you said, well, I go to con- communion, I go to confession, I, I don't necessarily feel that. Well, maybe you're not all the way there to where that saint was on the, on their, their road to holiness. Now, it doesn't mean you can't get there, but it, it's it's there's a, a real human component to it um, that has something to do with how much benefit we get out of the sacraments. And I, I think that's like really important. Somebody who's really well formed, really well prepared, and who's living a deep life of prayer as they prepare for confirmation, for instance, is probably going to have a, a little bit more profound of an impact when they receive confirmation than if you have someone whose parents forced them to go to a class and they barely listened, but they ticked off all the boxes and they showed up. You can think of it this way, sort of a human analogy. Um, Exercise can be a very powerful way to shape a human body, right? 
But even the best exercise program in the world is not magic, right? Even if you do it, right? I mean, a lot of it is doing the exercise. But even if you stick to a workout, you know, I really like the Superman movies. Henry Cavill, when he was training for Man of Steel, got into unbelievable shape. If you put me side by side with him in a gym and forced me under pain of death to do every exercise that he did, um, I guarantee you I would not look like he did. Uh, and, and part of that is because... Uh, I probably would have eaten differently than he did, right? So the, the exercise matters, but so does genetics, our habits, diets, hormones, all this stuff gets, gets sort of built in. The sacraments are not quite that complicated, right? But there's some sort of an analogy here that if we're more open to the work of the grace, to the work of the Holy Spirit, and if we're in fact trying as a human being ourselves to cooperate with those graces, then we can receive more from the same grace. So when St. Faustina received the Eucharist, she wasn't getting something different than what I receive when I go to communion, but it was a little bit more powerful of an experience for her because, and I think I can honestly say this without, you know, about myself, she's more closely united to the heart of Jesus Christ than I, a poor sinner, am. All right, so this is a little basic just about sacraments. Now let's talk about baptism as a sacrament of initiation. So in the catechism, as you're reading through the section on the sacraments, one of the things that may pass you by is that it describes the sacraments of initiation, and it lists them in this order, baptism, confirmation, and then Eucharist. In the Diocese of Tyler, we're, we're a restored order diocese, which means that's the order that, you know, a, an infant born here and that goes through all sort of normal steps of formation, that's the order they will receive those sacraments. Baptism, then confirmation, lastly, the Eucharist. That doesn't happen everywhere, um, but this is the grouping of the sacraments of initiation, and in the Church's, like, theology, and you see this in the Catechism, the idea is that we, we start— our first step of initiation is baptism, but baptism doesn't make sense by itself. It's ordered towards us later receiving confirmation, and then finally the Eucharist. And in some ways, that connection, especially between baptism and confirmation, really is blurred when you have baptism as the first sacrament, confession, then Eucharist, and then confirmation delayed until later. But there is still a link, even if you separate them temporarily like that. Um, if you go to a baptism, um, and I recommend going to baptisms anytime, anytime you can, it's always really just a, a great experience. Um, there, there is a link to confirmation, and that's the use of the, the chrismation oil, the oil of chrism, which is the most amazing smell in the world. Um, when you have a baby who's been given a good anointing at their, at their baptism, they get the oil of the catechumenate, right? The, the, the baptismal, uh, uh, the ritual of baptism, sorry, has two oils, and one of them is the oil of chrism. And that's the one that, like, the smell remains, and you can sometimes for days um, still smell that oil. That's the same oil that we use in confirmation. And there's a historical link in that early in the church, baptisms would include both a sacrament of baptism and then separately, but at the same ritual and the same rite, you know, the same liturgy, the confirmation of uh, the child or of the adult. Um, and frequently in the early church, also communion would be given in the same sort of liturgy. And actually, we still have 
some vestige of that in the church. So in the eastern parts of the Catholic Church, even for babies, we do baptism, then confirmation, and Eucharist, right? So there is like a really important historical and theological link between baptism and the other sacraments. And the reason that I want to emphasize that is because, right, we're in a year of baptism. Um, one of the things that sometimes is challenging for Catholics is to think about their baptism after it's happened. Like what's, okay, so I got baptized, but no, 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 no. The church wants to say, you're not, it's not, you are not a person who was baptized. Like I was baptized. No, I am one of the baptized. We are the baptized. That that baptism sort of continues to do something for us. And one of the ways that it does that is it gives us access to these other sacraments. It is the first step, but it's not the only step of initiation. The other reason why it's important to talk about this link between baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist, the idea that the sacraments of initiation all go together, is precisely because when we baptize a child or, you know, a kid, we don't want that to be the last sacrament they receive. So baptism in isolation is better than nothing, but it's also somewhat unintelligible. Baptism by itself matters, but it's it's incomplete. Baptism ultimately is ordered toward confirmation and then the celebration of the Holy Eucharist. Um, so this is this is important. And in the Catechism, you can see some different theological you know uh, notes about why why it is that that we ought to maintain that unity between the sacraments of initiation. Um, the Church teaches in paragraph uh, 1212 that uh, the order of baptism, then confirmation, then Eucharist is in place. Uh, it says that we will receive in increasing measures the treasures of the divine life and advance toward that perfection of charity. So we start with baptism, and we are deepened with confirmation, and then we receive Eucharist. Um, there's also a sort of a, a spiritual analogy to natural life, um, so that the Catechism notes that uh, natural life has its sort of stages of, you know, newborn, infancy, toddler, you know, you're a child, you're, you go through puberty, you're an adolescent, you're an adult, you know, a young adult, an adult, whatever. All these sorts of physical stages we, we recognize, right, developmental stages, that we can make a, a sort of a comparison with the sacraments, that where you are born naturally, you are reborn in baptism. Where you grow and are strengthened, um, you know, in your, your early life, you are strengthened by confirmation. You are fed, you know, with, with regular food in your natural life. You are fed with the food of eternal life in the Eucharist, right? So there's this way of looking at stages of our natural life and stages of our supernatural or our spiritual life and kind of seeing that the sacraments kind of play a role here. So baptism is a sacrament of initiation. It's one of them, and it's ordered toward the others. That's that's the key. All right. Now, one of the things that I always have uh, enjoyed is looking at, as you study the sacraments in the catechism, all of the different names that are used to describe each sacrament. So I want to spend just a little bit of time talking about some of the different titles for baptism that you see as you work your way through the catechism. So the first is baptism, okay? Um, you got to have one to be first, but it doesn't mean that's the only way you can refer to it. And it comes from the Greek term 
uh, baptizane. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce Greek, but it's a Greek phrase, and it looks just like baptism. And the literal meaning of that word in Greek is to plunge or to immerse. Okay, so we use that term to refer to the sacrament of baptism because the plunging or the immersion into the waters that you do, that you see at baptism historically was the dominant practice, and not just for infants, even for adults. So in the early period of the church, baptism mostly happened by immersion, plunging someone into an actual body of water or into a big, humongous baptismal font that even an adult could um, fit into. Um, and so it just has to do with the literal meaning of the term, to plunge, to, to immerse, baptizane, so we get baptism. Um, interestingly, the Catechism notes that immersion is still the preferred method, although, importantly, it's not the only one. But so baptism is one term for the sacrament. That's where it comes from, that notion of immersing, or submerging, or plunging something or someone into the water. All right, another title for this sacrament is the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a way of describing the same sacrament. You can plunge someone, immerse them, baptize them, or you can give them the washing of regeneration and renewal. And I think it's important to, to, to realize like that's those are not competing. Sometimes people can get sort of, maybe not with baptism in terms of like, what's the, the right way to refer to the sacrament, but you see this in some conversations about the Eucharist, that you should call it this and not this, or you don't, shouldn't call it a meal. And the church says it's a meal, um, but it also says it's the sacrifice of Christ. It's both of those. So baptism is a plunging and immersion, but it's also a washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. When you refer to it that way, which sometimes people did in the early church, this way of describing baptism highlights the fact that in baptism we're washed of our sin and we receive the new birth of water and the Holy Spirit. Well, you might say, okay, if you call it the washing of regeneration, that's to highlight the fact that we're washed of sin. I could see that, sure. But doesn't a baptism, doesn't immersion symbolize being washed? And like, that's true, it does. But also that immersion more, more uh, concretely was understood as a sort of death, as a tomb, like you were being buried. Um, and it does have to do with rebirth, and you know, like that's, that's built in there, but there's different ways of describing this sacrament. So baptism is to immerse. Washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit uh, is another one, and it, it, this emphasizes more that the rebirth uh, and then the birth of water and the Spirit that we receive in baptism. Another uh, term for baptism is enlightenment. You probably don't hear this as much, um, but it is something that in, in the early church and the church fathers, you, you see baptism referred to as an enlightenment. And this way of describing baptism emphasizes the new knowledge or the new understanding that comes with the receiving of, of faith that we receive through baptism and also because those who are baptized should serve in a very real way as a light to others. This way of thinking about baptism as enlightenment, gaining new knowledge, new understanding, 
really makes a lot more sense when you're thinking of adult baptism. Uh, baptism of infants, it's a little hard to say how exactly that gives you an enlightening or an understanding or new knowledge. But with the baptism of an adult, you, pre, you will preface that with formation, catechesis, learning, right? Receiving of knowledge, receiving the mystery of the faith, and then you receive the gift of faith, and you can come to a deeper understanding or an enlightenment. Um, and so the Catechism discusses this when it talks about that term enlightenment and says that for, for the baptism of adults, we have a pre-baptismal catechumenate, right? That means before they're baptized, they are prepared, they go through formation. And it's not just about learning information. They also begin to be slowly initiated into the liturgy. There's a whole lot of stuff that happens. But you go through all of these stages of formation and preparation when you're an adult and you want to be baptized. You do all this stuff first, then you were baptized. A lot of us maybe haven't seen that. Uh, adult converts obviously know what that's what that's about, but a lot of uh, cradle Catholics are very unfamiliar with what it looks like to be an adult preparing for baptism. So the Catechism says adults have a pre-baptismal catechumenate, and that is a very long historical heritage. When the Church was founded, millions and millions of people were converting from paganism, from Judaism, from whatever other faiths, or from, from no religion. They were adults, and they had this preparation and this formation first, and they receive through this formation and through the baptism a new light, a new understanding, a new knowledge, right? Now, what's interesting is that the Catechism says that's pre-baptismal catechumenate for an adult, but if you're baptized as an infant, you receive a post-baptismal catechumenate. And so I, I really like this because it emphasizes the fact that after the baptism of an infant, which let's be clear, is a really good thing. It's very important. It, it means you've got to do more follow-up work after. You don't just have the baptism, and then they get everything they need in this sort of magical kind of way that, like, they're not going to need anything else, right? No, you have a post-baptismal catechumenate. And actually, what's, what's really fascinating to me, and as I was thinking about this as I was preparing, is when you go to the baptism of an infant, okay, little kid, uh, and, and, and if you're keenly aware and you're studying, maybe if you've, like me, worked in ministry for years, you go watch the baptism of an infant or read through the rite, what you can see is that a baptism of an adult, which happens in RCIA, okay, or now it's going to be called OCIA, but this Christian Initiation for Adults, the Order of Christian Initiation for Adults, what happens in, in their preparation for baptism is stretched out over a long time, has some ritual liturgy components to it, some prayer, some formation, it culminates in finally receiving the baptism, but it's got all these sort of miniature liturgies built into it, okay? If you go to an infant baptism, you see a lot of those same things just compressed into like 30 minutes. Uh, and it's kind of overwhelming when you see the richness of the ritual, the liturgy of an infant baptism and how it connects with the, the baptismal preparation for adults. So for an adult who's going through the initiation process for adults, they receive something called the rite of acceptance, usually around Advent. And during this rite, which is very short, it's a couple minutes, the godparents 
or the gods the godparent like probably just one sponsor will make the sign of the cross on the adult's forehead on their shoulders on their lips man I don't know maybe their hands several places like that these you know important places on the body the pastor sometimes will do that or they'll both do this make the sign of the cross all over right if you go to an infant baptism so one of the first things that happens, and it can get kind of dicey because you're passing the baby around, parents do it, the priests, the godparents, um, all have to make the sign of the cross on the child's forehead, maybe on their chest, a couple of other places, right? So th- those happen for adults and infants in their baptism. It's just for infants, that happens, and then like 20 minutes later, they're baptized. For an adult, it's going to be probably six or seven months more before they are baptized, okay? Um In the infant baptism, uh, an infant is anointed with the oil of the catechumenate um, as a form of exorcism, a minor exorcism. When you're preparing an adult for baptism, they receive minor exorcisms. They're called uh, the scrutinies over the first few weeks in Lent. I think it's the second, third, and fourth Sunday of Lent. They have these minor exorcisms where uh, you have both of them happening, but again, for an adult, it's a few weeks before they're baptized. For an infant, it's about 20 minutes before they're baptized. So the signing of the cross, the, the exorcisms, minor exorcisms. After an adult is baptized, they receive confirmation immediately, same, same night, maybe 10, 15 minutes later. This is interesting because for most, in most cases, an infant is baptized, and then it is years before they're confirmed. So they swap. They swap. In this case, the adults get to do things faster. Um, and lastly, and last comment on this, um, the, the, uh, the connection between the RCIA process and, and an infant baptism. After the baptism of an adult, uh, they get to be confirmed, and then they receive their, their first Eucharist same day. And it's all the Easter vigil. It's beautiful. For infants in the West... We don't, we don't give the Eucharist to babies, although it is pretty sweet how they do that in the East, and I sort of wish we could do that everywhere. Nonetheless, for infants, there's a recitation of the Our Father. And I, I want to just comment briefly on this, and we'll wrap this, this episode up here. Um, it might seem kind of lame to look at an adult who's baptized and say, oh, okay, they're baptized, then they get confirmed, then they get to make their, their receive the Eucharist for the first time all the same day. Like, that's pretty awesome. This infant gets chrism oil, but not confirmation. It's a symbol of the confirmation to come later. They get sort of, you know, told, make sure you keep this, uh, th- keep these things going. You're not done yet. And instead of receiving the Eucharist, they we pray the Our Father. Is that like a lame, like, oh, we just we need some way to end this baptism. Let's stick in the Our Father. Actually, no. Um, that prayer of the Our Father at a baptism is actually really, really important because after the child has been baptized, when they pray the Our Father as a, as a group at the liturgy, um, it is the first time that that prayer is going to be uttered and the child can literally say God is now their father, can, can say that in a proper way because they've become, through baptism, a son or daughter of Christ. I'm just going to read briefly this description from the Catechism. Um, so this is describing the first Eucharist. Um, it's in paragraph 1244. I'm not going to read the whole paragraph. So the Latin Church, which reserves admission to Holy Communion to those who have attained the age of reason, 
expresses, listen to this, expresses the orientation of baptism to the Eucharist by having the newly baptized child brought to the altar for the praying of the Our Father. So that praying of the Our Father is now this child is a son or a daughter of God, so we can pray the Our Father on their behalf. The parents, godparents can pray it for them, and it shows us as a community that they are now oriented by their baptism to continue on this road of initiation and to ultimately receive the sacrament of the Most Holy Eucharist. So that's going to be the end of this first discussion, looking at some of the theological notes of baptism, theological you know, uh, development, and just just a deeper understanding of the sacrament. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll end here with part one, uh, but please stick around for part two. We're going to talk a little bit more about why we need baptism, what it does for us. It's linked to discipleship. Should be a really good conversation, so stick around. <laughs>